An uplifter is a compelling leader who tries to breathe life and hope into people around them. Who listen and care and guide and help. Whose way of being in the world inspires. Who uplifts with humor and understanding. Who leads by example. Don't judge. Vulnerable. Bold determination. Who are here to create a better world. Who can learn and teach. Who encourages you. Who shines their light to lead other people. Who uses their best self in order to help others. And the life that I like and I work toward that. We are all uplifters. Mwah. Big love. I am Beth Carroll. And today I am nominating a powerhouse of a woman. I'm nominating Reverend Anne Cansfield, who's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York. And Anne is vivacious. I love her because she's tell it like it is. She was named New Yorker of the Year a few years ago. She was the first lesbian to be appointed as a chaplain for the New York Fire Department. She's a history maker. She's fun. You're going to love her. Welcome to the Uplifters podcast. You just heard Pastor Beth Carroll, one of our previous guests, introducing a woman who inspires her, Anne Cansfield. I am so excited to meet you, Anne. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. What do I call you? Do I call you Anne? Reverend Pastor? Very common, very common problem. Oh my goodness. People so, so wonderfully deferential to the, in the fire department, they're, especially among our Catholic members, they really would like to make sure that they can get it right. One guy in particular who I love was trying to get my attention and was like, hey, Monsignor, hey, Monsignor. And I was not turning around because obviously why would I think that he was trying to talk to me? Finally, I was like, oh, you mean me? And he's like, yeah, I'm like, I'm not a Monsignor. And he's like, oh, I once got in trouble for calling one of you guys father when you were a Monsignor. So I don't want to get in trouble again. I just call you all Monsignor. Some smart strategy there, sir. Right? I love it. Like that's some, that's some firehouse logic. Genius. Genius. It is. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot that will improve my life in a lot of ways, but I've never lived on a block in New York City that did not have a firehouse. Ooh. So I feel like now I'm going to learn things that I can use to communicate with my vocal. With your, with your neighbors? (laughs) My neighbors, yes. So you weren't always a chaplain. No, I was not. I've held many an odd job. I worked on an assembly line. I made car batteries. My first real career was as a financial advisor. Interesting departure from the rest of your work. I mean, I don't know what the general thread is. Probably being in a lot of male-dominated spaces. I obviously, like, I don't notice it very much. But recently, I was reminded of an amazing conversation I had with a congregant who was having surgery for prostate cancer. And I went to his hospital room and we were discussing it and he got really deep, really fast. And then he paused and he like took a breath and he said, well, I'm just so glad that you're my pastor. And I, of course, like, I'll tell you all pastors, we all just look for like affirmation. We're just like sponges for actual affirmation. I'm like, really, really? He's like, oh yeah, I couldn't tell this stuff to a dude. And I couldn't talk to a chick either. You're perfect. And it's true. I was like, oh, that's it. That is my sweet spot. I need to be with guys 
who can't talk about stuff with the chicks and can't talk about it with dudes either. You could just be everything right there. That's it. That's it. I'm like, I'm right there, buddy. I am your person. Don't worry. I have many of a delightful story with fire department guys. There was this one time where a ball had been dropped and they needed a chaplain to do a funeral in half an hour up in Harlem. And they were like, please, can you get here right now? And it was like kind of during, during one of the sort of COVID lockdowns. And I'm like, yes, I'll, I'll be there. And I get there and they were like, Oh, really sorry. Like dinner up your day like this. What were you doing? And I'm like, actually guys, I was having a fight with my wife. And they were like, Oh, chaplain, you screwed up. You better go get her some flowers. And then I went and I did the funeral. And afterwards, they were like, remember, you need to go and get some flowers for your wife. So did you ever want to be a firefighter? How did this all happen? I mean, I go in retrospect, I should have. I completely should have taken the test, which is also like the number one reason why I wanted to come on the show is that like, if you have any listeners in New York City in the area, we're about to begin our recruitment campaign for the next firefighter civil service test. It comes around every four year or five years. It's an amazing job. And I just, I don't think I knew the process to even think about joining. So I didn't think about it, which was very foolish because it's a great job. I mean, I think that there are different types of people and different like types of brains and impulses that we all have. I've had many conversations where they're like, wow, you know what the fire department does It's just so amazing. Like you go into danger when I, like I would just want to leave a dangerous situation. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We get paid to go and do what we would naturally be inclined toward doing. There's people who just love the adrenaline rush and the desire to help in that way. Yeah, I think it is. It is a true uplifter job. It is. It is. But what's so great? It's like, if you have the personality you absolutely love it. It's a very natural fit. And I think that when folks find work that aligns with what, you know, lights their soul. I mean, I, I also find the sort of like, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life to be a little, I don't know, too like perfect. Like that's not exactly. Yeah. True. It's a little oversimplified for, for what, you know, any, anything you do in life, there's, I remember my pastor of my church growing up would he called it paying the rent. Like you always have to pay the rent and do, you know, the things that, you know, you might not want to do in, in any kind of job, but, but then you're, you're free to do the other things. Yeah, it is. I think, I think it's a good reminder too, that the goal of life is not for it to be sunshine and roses. It's for it to be fulfilling and connected and for most of us, of service or impact in some way. What makes you such a good fit for your job? Well, part of me, I I have like a somewhat, I think it's kind of funny joke, which I'm like, well, I was raised in the church, you know? So so the joke about the fire department is like, it's 150 years of tradition, unimpeded by progress. I'm like, but the church is 2,000 years of tradition unimpeded by progress. But in many ways, they're very similar. I actually think that the, the fire service in some ways is, is a little easier because it has a, it has a very distinct mission that is pretty direct. We protect life and property in the city of New York. I like to think of us as the, the people who, who protect God's people. What is it about you, though, personally, that makes you such a good fit for the work that you do? So I think I'm highly authentic. 
I've often thought that like the number one thing I can do consistently well is be myself. I totally lack impulse control. And, and I sort of have the sort of stereotypical personality, I think, for the fire department, which is kind of big and loud and like a golden retriever. We just want to help people, but having a good time cheering people on. I don't take that for granted, actually, because I think it's, it's what has allowed me to fit in well for the group. Mm. And so it isn't always an easy group to fit in, in particular, if you have a different type of personality. That's interesting. And I mean, it's an interesting way to look at this because historically, it's pretty, been a pretty homogenous group. It's been a lot of straight white men. And so to be somebody who is a woman who is openly gay in this space with these men, it's it, to me, it's just really cool because it seems like your mindset is, oh, I, I just fit right in because from a personality standpoint, we see the world the same way. We react the same way. We have the same tendencies. And these other factors are, are less relevant as a result. I mean, where I really don't fit in, in the sort of stereotypical FDNY, is that I'm not Catholic. Yeah. I'm not Catholic. And, Monsignor. Um, right? Monsignor, yeah. And so I think, and because some people will, will say, like, how's it going? How, you, how do you get treated? You know, how, how do people treat you? And I do think that sometimes there's like, a, oh, we just don't know what to do with you. Like, we don't know what to do with Protestants. We don't know what to do with women. We don't know what to do with people who look like you or act like you. I think being a clergy person is actually really great because you can fit into a lot of different situations and it works well in the fire department too. Clergy can be classless. One day I can hang out with homeless guys in the park and the next day I can be in the owner's box at Yankee Stadium and I'm the same person, the same minister in all those situations. I think I'm privileged in that I have a personality that fits in well with the vast majority of the group. Yeah. And it sounds like it's this, this duality of being able to fit in well and be deeply authentic. And sometimes those can be in conflict. Yes. So I would think that I would, if I were not as authentic, like they smell a lack of authenticity and they will use that to, it's over. Like they will find your weakness and needle you until you relent, which I think can be really problematic at times too. I mean, absolutely. But I think because I'm so authentic, there's not much of my life that you can really use against me to make me feel ashamed of myself or whatever. What does challenge your authenticity? Oh, I mean, I would, so I would say clashes of values. If one thing that I value very highly comes in contact with another thing that I value very highly, I can easily slip on like where my, where my values lie. And I think that this is actually really important for us to talk about as a society. One tremendous example, I think, is like with the, with the church sex abuse scandals. So I think part of what's going on is that people value and protect the institution more at times or have in the past tried to protect the institution and in so doing have sold out their values of caring for the individuals who have been harmed by the institution. And I can see where the impulse 
to protect the institution comes from. But I would also say in trying to protect the institution and harming individuals, you're ultimately harming the institution. Like the institution needs to have tremendous integrity. Mm. One of the things that I'm constantly aware of with the fire department is that we wear a uniform. And one time I was asking one of the members of the ceremonial unit about, there's a little clause in the uniform code that says that you can wear glasses that transition into sunglasses. So like my regular glasses here, if I take them outside, they'll become sunglasses. And I was told to get my sunglasses like that, because if we have an outdoor ceremony, I will want to protect my eyes from the sun. You cannot wear straight sunglasses. So this little quirk was something that I was kind of like, oh, so I'm like, tell me about this. And the guy goes, well, Anne, it's a uniform. We're supposed to look uniform, right? I've really thought about this much more deeply. Like the idea of wearing a uniform is that you're really interchangeable. And so you look as your least common, like, like the lowest common denominator, your weakest link, because if somebody, you know, associates you doing something that would harm the honor, the integrity and the valor of the uniform, then you're messing it up for the whole group. And also they're very effective. So like there was a, a big gas explosion in the East Village right after I came on the job. I knew nothing of what I was doing, but it was across the street from the church that I had attended for many, many years in college and seminary. My very beloved church where I met my wife and I had good. T- so I, I, I put on the, uh, the FDNY sweatshirt that I had been issued and it said Chaplain Cansfield on it. And I went down to this fire and the building collapsed and we almost lost. It could have been really, really, really horrible. We didn't have any firefighters who, who died miraculously in that fire, but it was so close. And, and one of, of a young firefighter who he came and he, he found me and he's like, this was my first fire. So he's like kind of repeating things and trying to make meaning. Like, I don't know how I got out. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you telling me this? Like, there were other ministers who were out there from the community. But, like, he picked me. And the whole reason he picked me was because I had, like, the team uniform on. It was a point where I was like, you put on that uniform. You have to be prepared to do your job because people are going to see the uniform. They're going to go and, you know, find what your part of the uniform is to tell, you know, who you are, what your job is, what you do. And so that people can find you when... They need you to do that. And people trust, people trust the people on their team. So even though he did not know me from anybody else, like he knew what he was supposed to do and I, I, and I was able to do it. But yeah, the importance of like recognizing that, that we all represent one another, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. And as unique as every one of you are in terms of your experiences and beliefs, you are a team. And that, that idea of being uniform, it would have been easy, er, surely, to make a uniform hiring decision when selecting the chaplain and to pick what I have to assume would have been another old white guy. No offense to all the old white guys, but they chose you. How did that happen? I learned about the job when Father Michael Judge was killed on 9-11, who was an incredibly beloved chaplain in the FDNY and just a great saint of New York City. Like, er, it seemed like everybody in the city 
knew Father Michael. One of my fellow chaplains, when he was taking me out early on, said, you know, people are going to tell you Michael Judge stories and, and listen hard to those because that's the way Michael's teaching you the job from the other side of the grave. And it is so true. Probably 10 years later, I met Father Chris Keenan, who is the Franciscan chaplain who took up Michael's work after 9-11. And I met him at Union Seminary. We were both recruiting young seminarians to come and work in our field ed placements. And I was so excited. I remember coming home to my wife and saying, I finally met one of the FDNY chaplains. He was so great. And he took me for a ride in his department car car that had like the radios it was so cool i thought like i had hit the jackpot and i'm like well let me tell you i need at least 20 more years before i can apply for that job because i am clearly not spiritually mature like like he is later on i told him that and he was like ha ha and like but it was true i was like i just don't feel like i'm really ready and then a couple of years went by and a colleague in a in a young women's clergy Facebook group asked a question like, Hey, have any of you ever been a fire chaplain? One of my congregants works for the fire department in New York and they're hiring a new chaplain and they'd really like to have women apply. And I mean, this feeling of like jealousy and rage, uh, totally unnecessary, but deep rage, like, Whoa, that is my job. <laughs> I dialed it back. I dialed it back and I like sent her a message. I was like, that's kind of my dream job. And she's like, oh, this is great. And she's like, you would be perfect at it. Here's all the info. I really love the story because it's a really great story of like women helping women. About a year had gone by after I got the job when we were starting to prepare for the 20th or for the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And the chaplains had a meeting. And in the meeting, they decided that we would all wear our liturgical traditional vestments. And I was a little hesitant on this. I'm like, can't we just wear our uniforms? And the real reason was the church that I have served is doesn't have a lot of spare cash. And so I've always had like hand-me-down vestments. And Father Chris, the Franciscan at the other end of the table, who's was very astute, was like completely picking up on this. And afterwards, he took me aside and he's like, what's really going on? What are you missing? And I explained, and he's like, Michael Judge would want you to have whatever stoles and robe you need. So go out and get what you need and let me know. And the Michael Judge fund will, will pay for this. And so all summer I was noticing inside of myself that I was basically fixating on what stole I needed to get. And like, there were just too many options and I couldn't find the right one. And I was like, I was getting catalogs and looking at websites. And finally, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and ask someone in the press office if they could go and find me some photos of Michael. And I will find the stole that he wore. And then I will just find a way to buy that. And that way I will, I'll be buttoned up. I'll be squared away. It'll be great. So I go to ask like a friend there, like, Hey, could you go and can you go and help me out with this problem? And she like looked at me. She's like, Anne, we already have enough of those guys. We hired you for you because we don't have one of you. So don't try to go and be anyone that isn't you. It was so incredibly powerful. I don't, and I've, I've, I've gone back to tell her how important that was. 
because I will replay it in my brain on the regular. Like, oh, you're right. Like I, because I really was trying hard to basically look like a Catholic priest Mm -hmm. so that I could fit in with the gang. Wear the uniform. Wear the uniform. So I ended up, I ended up buying a stall and, and while we were at St. Patrick's, the clergy vested in the, I'm sure there's some fancy name for it. Sacristy, maybe. Anyway, downstairs, downstairs in St. Patrick's. I mean, I totally feel like an imposter whenever I'm at St. Patrick. I'm very wide eyed and very worried that I'm going to do something that I'm not supposed to do or end up somewhere. And one of my fellow chaplains who knew, who knew about this situation said, you made a good choice on that stole, but it's a little understated. If you want to know where you really should get the nice ones, let me know and I'll give you my catalog. And it was like so perfect. I'm like, what a, you know, a, a beautiful, a beautiful little slap to not being, you know, fancy enough, which is like exactly what Michael would have loved. Like he was constantly never being fancy enough for them. And then he would send me the cat, which I was like, this is perfect. It's absolutely the best. How authentic. I hope you'll share a picture of that with us so that we can share it over at the uplifterspodcast.com. Are you originally a New Yorker? I was actually born in West Michigan, Holland, Michigan, near where Beth Carroll was. Wow. The uplifter chain connects here. Yeah. So you're our, our third Hollander then. Oh, really? Yeah, because Where's the person who nominated Hollander? Beth, Lisa Crozier, is also in Holland. So, oh. Well, I, I left Holland when I was seven. So I, I was seven and my parents moved to Rochester, New York. And you say you grew up in the church. Your father was also a clergy, I think I read. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my father uh, was a minister. He was in theological education. I read somewhere that your father officiated your wedding? Yes, he did. Yeah. Because as he said, that's what dads are supposed to do. It's really sweet. I'm like, really, dad? That's so sweet. Yeah, it's very sweet. And did he lose his job over this? He did. He lost his job. So this, again, goes back to this core values piece, the institution versus the humanity. Right. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the the institution, people were really angry at my dad because they felt like he put the institution at risk because there was so much conflict. And it's amazing in 2023. So I, I was trying to explain this to my kids who are 15 and 12. And they're still kind of like, like, what? What the, what the world was kind of like in 20, 2004. I mean, which isn't that long ago at all. But wow, it was very, very, very different around gay marriage and marriage equality. It was a very different time. And I mean, and the church in general is a rather conservative institution. So like they, I mean, at the time, I think there were a lot of people who couldn't believe that he would even do that. And, and many, many, many who were very angry because they felt that he was putting the institution in jeopardy. So what are people worried is going to happen? I'm not sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of like slippery slope arguments people understand what marriage means. Like it is an actual term that has a real currency that people know what your relationship is to someone. And I actually think like it was helpful in the neighborhood because they knew that we were married. And in the same way that same fire- firefighter was like, Oh, you screwed up. You better get your wife some flowers. Yeah. Um, like they, they know that that's what the relationship is. Yeah. It was familiar. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I think like many, yeah, many people can understand and can relate. And is this unusual to for co-pastors to be married? 
I think it's becoming less unusual. Oftentimes people meet in seminary. Are you essentially like parents to this church as a result? Good question. So, I mean, so the church that when I, when I arrived, it had been a church that was really down to about eight people. So it was, it was ready to re, you know, potentially reinvision what it could be. And I had a clergy coach ask me like, how old do you think your church is? If you were going to compare it to a child. And at the time I was like, I think it's about nine. She's like, good. It can go and get some milk at the bodega on its own, but you wouldn't like leave it for an overnight. And it's, I'm like, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's probably been five years. And I bet that they're like, they're close to 17 or 18. Wow. Wow. Yeah. They're, they're due to throw a kegger when we go away sometime. And I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to get wild and crazy. <laughs> but it, it is a lot like, I mean, I think that part of what, uh, of what a pastor is meant to do is like help people grow in their spiritual maturity and to help congregations grow in their emotional maturity. When you start a new congregation or you work on revitalizing a congregation, oftentimes like the pastor's ego stands in the place of, because like, who is this church? It's often pastor driven. And it's been really fun for me to be able to empower more people to do more of the frontline stuff. And I can retreat part of me thinks that like, I will know that I did a good job when they're able to launch similar to my children. I would really like my children to launch in a healthy way. And I would like my church to be launchable. I also really love this congregation. They're just wonderful, interesting, delightful people. I'm grateful that, that I get to go and help them grow in their maturity. It does sound an awful lot like parenting. Oh, and, and I and I really love getting to have long-term relationships with people. Mm. Like we have some congregants where we knew them before they got married. We knew them as they got married. We knew them when they had kids. And now their kids are going into high school. What do you do to take care of you? I spend a fair amount of time, I would say, some people might call it prayer or like kind of quiet reflection time, like thinking things through. Like, what isn't working? What is working? Mm -hmm. What do I want to try a little better on? Where do I need time to grow? How do I want to parent in ways that are going to like help them to, to be able to be, you know, humans in the world, really like the best gift that the fire department has given me is like, what's an actual emergency and what's just a crazy brain, like neuroticness. And so like trying to go and figure out how to help my kids to be the best versions of themselves. And it's like, it isn't about what your grades are necessarily. And it, it isn't about like, I don't want to put any pressure on them to go to any particular school. Yeah. So it's like, you've found a sense of balance through this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly have, I mean, maybe I don't get paid a lot of money. So like, I have to make that work or whatever. Like, I mean, other people have other values and other things that they want more. I'm just privileging the fact that I'd like to enjoy every minute, you know, as best I can. Like I want to go and wring the joy out of every minute of life because life is really short and I don't want to go and I don't want to waste a second of, I, I don't ever want to read Kant or de Tocqueville or, um, you know, Plato. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to talk smack about you, Columbia, but like, eh, you know, it didn't, really didn't spark joy. Yeah. What does spark joy? You know, like, Pastor I can be all the smart in the world, but it doesn't spark joy. What sparks joy for me? Oh my gosh. I. Other than Marie Kondo. 
<laughs> Other than Marie, Marie Kondo, I, I mean, it's so life-changing for me. But because actually I realized that life gets a lot better when I edit things down. The task of weeding out is really difficult for people with ADHD. And so, because like, it's just another choice. So I just need to not have very many choices. And I'm so much happier. I'm a woman of simple pleasures. I love like delightful worship with good music and old school hymns. And, you know, I like some dill pot roast for Sunday dinner. And then my wife, Jen, jokes, she's like, and then what you want is a nice third alarm fire where nobody gets hurt, but you get to see all your friends. She calls it puppy playtime. She's like, go off and have some puppy playtime. Live around a fire with your fire friends. I love that so much. <laughs> and so that's, for me, is the perfect. All bases met. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's all. I'm a simple gal. Just feed me, socialize me. Amazing grace. That's it. And let me have a little impact. Let me feel on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> let me feel on purpose, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, be of service. At, if if at the if at the the, the the nice fire, I could I could go and be a useful chaplain. Oh, even better. In my little uniform. <laughs> my little looking uniform in the uniform. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Well, this has been an absolute joy to talk to you. I'm so excited that we're friends now. For those of you listening, come on over to our Substack at theupliftherspodcast.com. There you'll find a picture of Pastor Anne in her groovy stole <laughs> and <laughs> lots more ideas, inspiration, research, and tools to support you uplifters. You're out there helping everybody else do everything. Let's take care of ourselves and keep rising higher together. Thank you for listening to the Uplifters podcast. If you're getting a boost from these episodes, please share them with the uplifters in your life and then join us in conversation over at theupliftherspodcast.com. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast and like, follow, and rate our show. It'll really help us connect with more uplifters and it'll ensure you never miss one of these beautiful stories. Mwah! Big love. Painted water sunshine with rosemary and tongue. Dwell in the perplexing, though you find it vexing. Toss a star and hover, be your own best lover. Relish in a new prime, plant a tree in springtime. Dance without all hindsight, bring the sun to twilight. Lift you up, whoa, lift you up, whoa, lift you up, whoa, lift you up, lift you up, whoa. Mommy, stop crying. Mommy, stop crying. You're disturbing the peace.